From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. This is the second part of our live Q&A event held at Dublin Sugar Club on Monday the 24th of April. If you're based up in Scotland and like what you hear, can we remind you that we're appearing at the Signet Library on the 25th of May. For details and tickets, head to theblizzard.co.uk slash events. One or two comments made by the panellists in this second half were entirely off the record, and so you'll notice a couple of dips in sound. But now, back to Owen McDevitt at the Sugar Club. There's no need for applause at the start of part two. It's okay. You've, you've been polite enough already. Thank you. Thank you. For any latecomers in the room, we've got Ian McIntosh, Philippe Claire, and Jonathan Wilson here. Uh, and I do want to go to you, Ian, because you watched the latest example of the coaching genius of the great big Sam Allardyce. The man, the myth, the legend. What did you make of, of, the, of, well, of his performance against Liverpool? Um, <laughs> it, it was a strange sort of game because Palace didn't really want to do anything for quite a long time. They just set up four, five, and then a very, very vast gap and Benteke. And they just let Liverpool dash themselves against their own castle walls for, well, right up until Coutinho hit an amazing free kick, which seemed the only way they were going to score. At that point, it seemed like the game was done. You know, Palace must have looked at it and thought, well, it's away at Liverpool, you know. Actually, Palace probably didn't look at it and think like that because they've pissed on their fireworks so many times in the last five years. They probably saw it as three points straight away. Um, and then Liverpool just, just got sloppy and just conceded stupid goals. Allardyce afterwards was quite pleased with himself, which I think is... It's his base state, generally. Yeah, he seems to be going into a lot of detail, once again, on how he outfoxed another Premier League manager. Yeah, it's, it's genuinely no, no manager, I think, in the world who enjoys winning a game. Yeah, enjoys talking you through how he won the game. <laughs> Football is still fun for him. It's like funny, Lord Green licking the cream off his whiskers. Brendan. <laughs> I have seen Brendan Rodgers' press officer pretty much pick him up and carry him out of the press conference <laughs> to stop him talking. Um, no, it's funny, Allardyce gets very sniffy about discussing tactics if, if his team haven't won. But if they have won, <laughs> then school's in. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty phenomenal job he's done there. Though. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, six wins in their last eight games. Well, that's title-winning form. And that's a team that looked dead on its bottom not very long ago. In February, they looked relegated and hopeless. And away at Arsenal? Three away, points. Away, yes. Uh, City? Is this forthcoming? I, I lose no, track. No, 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 no. It's not City. Chelsea? Yes, I yes, mean, it's, it's not exactly against Liverpool. Mickey Mouse size. Well, I mean, in fairness, and I'm not saying this to take any of Sam's glory away, not that such a thing could be possible, but they are a very, very good squad. I think Tony Barrett said on Twitter yesterday that watching them now just makes you think, how bad is Alan Pardew? <laughs> Which I think is a bit harsh. He... Somewhere down the line, he lost his way with that lot. But when you look at that team, that's Benteke, a £30 million yeah. pound striker. That's Zahar, who's probably worth £30 million as well. Townsend used to be quite good for England. Yeah, they're, they're a decent side. They should never have been anywhere near the relegation zone. What's this Liverpool start at now, the, their <sighs> record against the their good teams, the bad teams? Against fellow members of the top seven is 2.16 points every game. Their record against everyone else is 1.68 points. There's half a point a game difference on average. They'd be great in the Champions League. They've <laughs> <laughs> got to get there first, though. I don't think it's going to happen at this rate. It's just baffling. I mean, there's, 
the most worrying thing for Liverpool is that that was their best defensive line. He he likes Lovren, and in fairness, Lovren can you know play the ball out. He's he is a decent defender. Matip's the best defender they've got. Um, Nathaniel Klein's excellent. Uh, James Milner is you know doing a thoroughly admirable job, though possibly not exactly what you'd want. That was their best back four, and it didn't work. It got found out. Is uh, the obvious reason why they can't seem to perform against the lesser teams is the lesser teams won't come and play football to the extent that the other big teams will against them. Is there any more to it than that? Is there a psychological issue at play here, do you think? Yeah, I think it must have become psychological by now because um, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, it, it, it makes sense in that uh, you might expect maybe those records to be, to be similar, whereas for other teams they get fewer points against the top sides and more against the lower sides. But to actually be better against better teams, it, it just why are they conceding goals? Like if you're not scoring goals, that, that's logical. The, okay, you, you haven't got the wherewithal to break down a packed defence, but to not break down a packed defence and then keep conceding, you know, if, if you're if you're bad at the back, you will let in goals against good teams as well. That's the really weird bit. Uh, and I know there's kind of there's sort of a uh, you know a typical goal Liverpool concede now which is they lose the ball in the opposition half, a couple of opposition players run really quickly at them, and then Simon Minole or Lois Karras watches the ball fly past him, <laughs> and for some reason, <laughs> did, he, did he know the game had started again? So it's, um, it's very Arsenal. You know, Arsenal have that thing where both their full-backs push up, and so they, they get exposed on the flanks. Uh, Arsenal have that thing where up until Petr Cech arrived, they hadn't really had a first-class goalkeeper. Um, and it's very Arsenal to have pretty much the same game plan. Um, I, I mean, I, I, the same mentality. Haven't, I have to say, I haven't checked this. I'm not even sure how you would begin to check it. But I wonder if the issue, and I, I say this with some reluctance because I, I really like him as a, as a player and uh, what I know him as a bloke, he seems a very admirable bloke. But I wonder if the issue is Jordan Henderson. That he's not uh, holding, you know, that issue of a two fullbacks pushing on, you can get away with that. If you hold him in field, sort of holds his position, sits in front of the, the two central defenders, becomes effectively a third central defender. But that's not what Jordan Henderson well, does. It's never been what he does. He's got a, you know, his, his engine is his greatest asset. Um, and I, I wonder whether he gets carried away against poorer sides and gets dragged too far forward. That sort of, that frustration not breaking down weaker sides drags him out of position and that's the issue. I think the, the worry yesterday was that Lucas was doing that. I mean, preemptively as well, as soon as they played the ball out from the back, Lucas was deeper than the two centre-backs so that the full-backs could get up and they still got beaten down the flanks. And Klopp was at a loss afterwards. He was asked, you know, why do these goals keep going in from set-pieces? He went, I don't know. <laughs> which, which is very, it's admirably honest, but he's going to have to find an answer sooner or later. For all of that, though, I think they're a better team than when he took over. I think he hasn't even had one full season yet. Um, they are very, very much a work in progress. Um, so yeah, there, there are a few Liverpool fans who tend to get a little hysterical uh, about these things. Just a bit. It, uh, it would keep, keep the faith. Um, I, I remember talking to uh, Joshua Wijnaldum uh, after one of these wins at Anfield against uh, a top team. Uh, and um, we were asking him... Um, could you explain to us why you're so crap against the lesser teams? I think it's actually the word that I used. And uh, he's a nice chap, he understood. And he said, 
I have no idea and I keep asking myself the same question. <laughs> so, no, 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 but that means that psychologically, they're obviously talking between themselves, thinking, you know, come on guys, we, we can't concede these goals. But there is no, there is a mental block now somewhere. And um, I don't know if it comes from the what happened against Burnley, uh, where they were beaten 2-0 after having 81% possession. And that possession. game absolutely was Jordan Henderson's fault. Uh, I think the first goal there is a really weak pass from Henderson and he's out of position and they, they Burnley yep. break. Um, but <laughs> shrugging of shoulders. That's, that's all I can say about Liverpool's record against the uh, the lesser teams. Guys, I don't know if you've got the microphone there to get a couple more Twitter questions out. Yeah, um, the first one. Miguel Delaney wants to know: Would you rather be too warm or too cold? <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it obviously depends on circumstance, but also clearly too cold. Because if you're too cold, you light a fire or you put a jumper on or you go somewhere warm whereas if you're too hot Take off unless your clothes. you go into yeah but that doesn't work does it I mean A it's illegal if you're in public <laughs> and B if it's hot you're just going to burn you've just got to find some of that conditioning so I know he's got his Hispanic blood but it's obviously you'd rather be too cold thanks Miguel for um, hiring would you want the one on, on football yeah um, Chris asks if your life depended on a goalkeeper saving a penalty who would you choose? Andy Dibble. <laughs> Hero of the 1988 League Cup final, was it? Arsenal against Luton. Backup goalkeeper, thrust into the limelight. A penalty for Arsenal to, uh, to go clear, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Andy Dibble there, stretched out, a human colossus, palming the ball away. It was magnificent. Diego Alves, obviously. I mean, he saved half the penalties ever faced in his career. Who did you say? Diego Alves. Will Caballero of the current ones. I think that's, that's not a very exciting choice, but uh, statistically sound. <laughs> and, and also, unlike Andy Dibble, he's not like 60. Well, I mean, I, I want Andy Dibble in his prime. I mean, I thought we were using the same teleportation <laughs> technology that we used before. Actually, statistically speaking, isn't Daniel Alves top of the tree there? I, I think he is, yeah. Yeah. He is. So I changed my choice. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Diego Alves, not, not Danny Alves. Diego Alves. All right, we have the Manchester derby coming up later on in the week, which is significant, not, in, not as significant as they might have liked at the start of the season. It's certainly a mile away from being a title decider. Who is doing the less impressive job, Philippe? Pep Guardiola um, or Jose Mourinho? Okay. Um, I, I'd have to say Pep Guardiola. Against, uh, you know, um, that's not exactly what I would have said two or three months ago, but when you're given such um, a huge amount of money to spend, as Jose Mourinho was given, um, but the difference being that the recruitment plan done by Manchester City was done very much with Pep Guardiola's ascent, whereas what Woodward and the others went for, you know, the world record for Pogba and all these sort of things. I'm not too sure that Jose Mourinho was particularly keen on this one, um, but they've already got one trophy in the bag. Um, they could well have a second one, which g- gives them qualification for the Champions League, whatever happens. And uh, they've managed to... Uh, they're on an extraordinary series of results, which nobody's talking too much about, because in terms of the, the way they play, it's not particularly exciting. And on the other hand, you think, wow, um, if Manchester City finish with no trophy out of the Champions League places, 
beaten by Manchester United in the, in the League Cup, so forget that. This is way, way back from the expectation. And, and unfortunately, the expectation has got to be taken into account. So I would go for, as much as it hurts, as you can see, uh, I would say Mourinho probably on top of, uh, so to speak. I, w I don't want to think about that. <laughs> I, I Jeez, guess what did I just say? Mourinho would absolutely be on top. I, and I guess I said that, that, that <laughs> there's such a... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was too much. Seems to be I, I, I'm going to look like this guy from Infowars, you know, in a second. I'm sorry! Excuse me! There seems to be almost an assumption that because Pep has such a refined way of playing, that the more of his type of players he gets into the club, and as Philippe says, he's getting his players in there, yeah. the, the, the closer he will get, and, and that, of course, he will succeed eventually. Is that fair analysis, do you think? I, I think we need to be grown up about it, and we need to recognise that there are still such things as transitional seasons. These are a new league, a new team, new players, and it's not going to happen just like that. I know it did for Conte. He really ruins this argument. Um, but now you've been football, as we said before. Well, yeah. Um, and, and I think you can see signs of where Guardiola's going. I mean, there, I was at Southampton, Man City, and there were stages in the last 20 minutes where you could sort of see it coming together. Mourinho has had the better season. I mean, he has a trophy for starters and a fair chance of another one as well. Though also, watching Man United, sometimes it's like being stuck in very slow-moving traffic. Not stationary traffic, because stationary traffic's fine. You can check your phone and stuff. But where you're always on the clock, you never quite get into second gear. That kind of thing. It's really, really... I was at Man United West Brom a couple of weeks ago, and I still haven't Ooh, entirely recovered. Um, the, a question was, is football fun? <laughs> <laughs> that, that game was not, no. Um, so, to, in two, three seasons, I think Guardiola will be in a better position than Mourinho. I think Guardiola will be in the same position, whereas I'm not sure Mourinho will be. But right now, Mourinho is besting him. Well, I think actually the, the, the great thing about this, I mean, I, I, I fundamentally agree, Mourinho looks as though he will end up having a, a better season. If, you know, if they end up losing to Salta Vigo and finish fifth, then probably not. But, um, but I think the, the encouraging thing is that Guardiola, Mourinho and Klopp will all get another season before anybody really starts questioning you know, should they be losing their job. But the Premier League at the moment has this, you know, these, these sort of uber-managers, these sort of six, if you include Wenger, your managers who will be given time. There is faith in them. And I, you know, if you look back through English history and ask yourself, of the really great managers in English football history, how many in today's climate would have kept their jobs? You know, we're talking about Pochettino and not winning a trophy. It's demand, oh, you must win a trophy. Right. Matt Busby won the FA Cup in 1948, but Manchester United finished second four times in a row. Yeah. Like now, people go, well, he, he, he hasn't got it. He hasn't got the edge to push them that final that final, you know, the final few yards, there's something lacking. And maybe, maybe it's actually true, maybe Busby in 49, 50-51 didn't have that edge, but the point was he was allowed to develop it. You look at Clough in his first season, both at Derby and Forest, they finished mid-table in the second flight. It took Don Revy three years to get promoted at Leeds. It took Shankly four years to get promoted at Liverpool. I, I mean, success came very quickly once he's promoted, but it took time to build the teams. And you th you, as you think of, uh, even Herbert Chapman, five years yep. before, yeah, you know, Arsenal, the richest team in the country, okay, they hadn't won anything, but the richest team in the country took them five years to win the FA Cup. And then the league followed the following season. 
Yeah, think of the greats of English football, of world football, who would be lost in the modern climate. So I, th I think it's encouraging that we're talking about, okay, the first season hasn't been great, but they're going to get time. And I, I think with Mourinho, with, I mean, maybe Mourinho's a slightly different case because of the three-year rule that seems to apply to him. But certainly with Guardiola, certainly with Pochettino, certainly with Klopp, I mean, wi with Conte, if things don't go as well next year, but I mean, there's no really, you see how he deals with European football. But it, give them two, three, four years. Let those narratives become more developed. Let them become more complex. Let them get their own ideas there. Let them actually have a philosophy that has time to breed rather than this kind of constant, you know, what Alex Ferguson said, the, the reality TV demand to vote somebody off every week. I mean, I'd be the devil's advocate here because um, that you, you're absolutely right. But on the other hand, those managers, um, I mean, if you're talking about Conte or, um, or Guardiola, I have at their disposal probably the best academies in the country, if not in Europe. And they've been very, very unwilling to draw on them when you would have thought that precisely if they want to build something long-term, you know, City have got a great academy, Chelsea have got the best under-21 team in Europe. They've had it for three years now, and they're not using them. But I mean, that, that in itself, you could argue, is a product of a lack of patience, that managers are now not prepared to take risks. Yep. And so you have this absurd situation of top clubs piling enormous amounts of money into academies, but essentially are only there to sell players on to fund themselves. Because, you know, to, I mean, something Klopp is doing is giving young players a chance. And Pochettino has done magnificently in terms of giving young players a chance. So that's another reason to, to be patient with them, to give them time. And if that idea, if that notion that managers don't have to succeed within six months of arriving at a club, if that can take hold... It's got to be good for youth development and for English football as a whole. They won't all be given time, though, Jonathan, surely, because by definition, they can't all be successful. So but surely, I mean, with, with maybe, within a couple of years... Maybe, though, the fact that there are these... I mean, Wenger, I guess, is a slightly different case, but there are these five incredibly exciting young managers, youngish managers, um, managers who are clearly not past their peak. I mean, OK, questions over Mourinho, but still, there's a, there's a basic faith that he's one of the best managers in the world. I think, A, there's a recognition that, hang on, there are five of them. I, they, you know, so there's three domestic trophies to go around. At least two of them are going to be uh, disappointed. And also, you have a question of, who on earth do you replace them with? If you're City, and you've, you've built your entire ethos, you've brought in Fern Soriano as CEO, you've brought in Tiki Bagiristan as sporting director, you've, you've brought in, you're, you're basically recreating Barca, and you've got the figurehead, you've got the man who made the modern Barca, and you get rid of him after a year? Sam Sorry, that Allardyce. sounded really, <laughs> sounded really Kilroy, that. Sorry, I apologise for that. Um, but, yeah, they, they have to give Guardiola time, because there's no, there is no replacement. I mean, it'd be lovely to see Sam Allardyce there, it'd be hilarious. <laughs> I'm still quite disappointed he didn't last at England. No, I just well, wanted to see. Sunland, but yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to see what it would have been like. Now the, the only I, thing I, I was going to. I'm amazed that you're not talking about Craig Shakespeare and the fantastic tactical <laughs> job he did of Atletico. But there you go. I, I was just going to add that there is actually an argument for patience now, a fiscal argument for patience, because the pitfalls of not finishing in the top four and not qualifying for the Champions League are relatively lessened now by that enormous Premier League TV deal, whereas before it was this whopping great drop in your revenue. Now it's, it's not so much. You can actually take the hit and not be there and still buy big players. In any case, I think the argument about patience is completely lost on somebody like me who is an Arsenal fan. 
<laughs> All right, we can throw the microphone around a little bit now if anybody has any questions to ask. I know there were, there's some near the front. We'll certainly get over to that side because there's a gentleman waiting from the first half of, of the show. Just uh, give us a yeah, here you go. Um, just a question on Liverpool. Could there be an argument made that Klopp is doing pretty much the same job as Rodgers, given the transfer policy that got rid of Sterling by lowballing him with wages? If Rodgers had been given someone like Mane and hadn't been thrown into European football, like you've already said, Jonathan. You see the Trump gesture here? <laughs> you had Luis Suarez? <laughs> Need I add anything? Uh, yeah, I think you do. I think I, th I think Rogers was pretty pretty hard done to by by Liverpool. I, I would I would have liked to see Rogers given more time. I think the problem is by the end he'd become a slightly farcical figure. That his press conferences were it was it was often quite difficult not to snigger. He he'd become a ridiculous. Um, he'd, be, he'd become almost self parodic, and that the, the moment that happened was. They'd had that game of uh, that run of was it 13 games unbeaten after they switched to the 3-4-2-1, which turns out to be incredibly prescient. You know, 3-4-2-1 is now the en vogue formation, mm -hmm. uh, and Rogers is the first first manager in, in you know, modern English football to, to do that. Yeah, he that was going to be the point, as in that he was left with Lambert and Balotelli in this formation that was actually working before. But it was working, and then. Before, yeah, so they, they played for the first time against Manchester United, lost 3-0, but incredibly unlucky. And then, I think it was the second time they played Manchester United with it. And the night before, um, or the morning of that game, he, he obviously briefed two journalists, one from the Times, one from the, uh, one from the Mail, about how he came up with it. And it was this sort of ridiculous sort of, you know, there was I was. beautiful. There I was, at, you know, sitting there at Melwood at night, and kind of, I, was, I was fretting about how, you know, it was like something from David Peace, kind of going over it and over it and over it in his head. Like, how can I get this to work? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I, you know, all that sustained me was tea and toast. Because <laughs> you know, this is Liverpool in the 21st century, and you can't ring for pizza or like something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, cheese and tomato pizza and Sprite. You know, <laughs> and um, you, know, you, you read that, and you sort of... You, part of me wanted to say... I, you know, I, I was instinctively sympathetic because... I, I thought what he'd done was, was fascinating. He, he, he'd seen what Basel had done against Liverpool. He'd learned from that. It was, it was working. The use of Sterling as a false nine in that system worked really well. But then he, he undermined it all by, by this, this briefing he'd given where you know, he, he sort of made it all about him, not about the players. And the problem is, as soon as you do that, when things go wrong, well, that's also all about you, not about the players. So I, I, think, he, I think he was unfortunate. I think... It would have been, it would not have been. Well, I don't know. Klopp is such a charismatic figure that maybe he is a step up anyway. But I don't think Rodgers was was a, was the failure he's often uh, portrayed as at Liverpool. But he did sort of bring about his own downfall by making himself this this ludicrous figure. Yeah, I, I, I concur with that. I like Rodgers, and I think he does get a hard deal, even though half the time it's me handing out that hard deal. But he is just naturally comedic, and I can't help myself. Um, but and not for the podcast. Um, but there were a number of things going on. As much as I do like him, and I think he's still got a future at 
somewhere near the top of the game, I think he had to go. But Philippe, you did an interview for Blizzard with Rogers yes. when he was still, still at Swansea? It was a, it was a Swansea at and the time. And yeah, the, the, the bullshittery sort of came across in that interview. You were quite careful with it, but it I was... I was very careful, and um, <coughs> it Didn't was all about Esperanto. euphemisms, and um, it was not, innu not even innuendo. It was just trying to make people understand that. But uh, possibly, and that even though he'd achieved an awful lot, he still thought he had to prove himself. And it was the same when he was, his press conferences were, oh my God. <laughs> he would always start by explaining us how brilliant his uh, tactical setup was. And I remember, was it a game against Tottenham when Philippe Coutinho did one of his things, you know, his kind of Robin-like thing, going inside, curling a shot inside the, uh, the opposite post. And he explained to us that this was all down to the way he'd set up the team. <laughs> yeah, okay, thank you very much. It was the first thing he had said in the press conference. So he didn't get much of, um, much leeway, should I say, from, from us, perhaps because of that. Perhaps we were a bit unfair. But he's also one of those people who, in press conferences, he would always, well, not always, but if he knew the journalist, he would always refer to them by name. New which, Labour. Which, you know, is such a sort of... Maybe when people started doing that in sort of the 80s, that was quite a good tactic to kind of get people on board. But it's such an obvious sort of business school strategy. And, and when Begonia was in, the, was in the audience, he would say, Senorita? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> in? But my, my favourite one was where he was trying to tell... I think it was in that Being Liverpool documentary. He was trying to tell the reporter that... You're um, going to talk about his wife, aren't you? No, no, oh, no, no. Good heavens. Um, he, was trying to, he was trying to put across the fact that he wasn't from a particularly wealthy background and he was very hardworking. And he said, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was born with a silver shovel. I was like, well... <laughs> well that, that's loads more silver. <laughs> he must have been really rich. <laughs> On the other hand... <laughs> and that's, that's, the, that's the other side of him. All the stuff he said about when he was a young coach, he travelled around Spain and so forth to try and learn about the game is absolutely true. So he might be a bit of a ridiculous figure in some ways, but he's not a ridiculous Pops coach in the right at place. Okay, before we get into Brendan Rogers' night here, we <laughs> might move it along to our next question. It's a fascinating subject. It is. Sorry guys, how are you? Uh, thanks very much for being here. Um, I suppose the main question, it's I suppose somewhat about loyalty and money. So I'm just wondering, do you think we will ever see players again like, um, as a Milanista, I suppose, Maldini, or players like Totti? Will we get fake one club players like uh, Gerard, <gasps> possibly Terry? <laughs> or is the whole idea completely gone because... Just there's too much money involved. It's not what gone. It's, it's rubbish to say that. It's not gone. And I don't, I don't think it ever existed. I think there's a lot of bollocks going on about this thing. If, if players, when they were slaves, and they were slaves to their clubs, had had a choice to change clubs to earn a better living, they would have done so. And um, the fact that they are doing so today is absolutely fine and should be fine with everybody. Uh, when you talk about players who have a special feeling for their clubs, read the Stuart James piece about Leon Britton today, who is at Swansea. I think you'll find he's a guy who actually cares about his club an awful lot, even though he earns a shitload of money than Natloft House used to, to earn in his club. 
And I think we make far more, far too much of that, personal opinion. Um, and that there are actually, yes, a great many players who do care an awful, awful lot about their clubs. Look at, look at the guys when you, you know, the, the, the pundits, the guys who have grown to become pundits. Look at Ian Wright. Is he uh, anything but an Arsenal man? I don't think so. And, and you'd be surprised how many players from a, a younger generation still have this feeling of belonging. It's just now that they have the possibility of having their careers evolve, not just in one particular place, but to go to other places where perhaps they can earn more and win more. And what's wrong about that? But I mean, even Ian Wright, although he's very much an Arsenal man now, he was a Crystal Palace man. So it, it, it sort of there's, a, there's an element of luck about where you start your career. If, you, if you're a totty who start, you starts your career at Roma, for a club you support, but happens to be one of the biggest half dozen clubs in Italy, you know, it's, it's relatively easy to stay there. If you're Ian Wright and you start with Crystal Palace, why on earth would you stay at Crystal Palace when Arsenal are calling? You know, it's, there's, well, there's, there's obviously there's ways of conducting your move, but I think it'd be absurd. You know, if, if I'd been a million times better at football than I was, and I'd been taken on by Sunderland, would I have stayed there for my entire career? No, obviously not. It'd be ridiculous. <laughs> Steve Ball stayed at Wolves for most of his career. Uh, it's a different Matt age. Matt Letizia would be another one who, who Even that's a different age. You're, you're talking about players 80s, 90s. I mean, okay, Letizia, obviously... I just say, obviously, were there actually concrete offers from big clubs who would let him play the way he wanted to play? I mean, I think Letizia is a very different case. Bull, you know... Tom Finney wanted to leave. He was prevented from leaving. Yeah, or you Many English like players went to Colombia when the uh, uh, when you know uh, when the the, the millionaires um, uh, competition was happening there. Well, Wilf Mannion at Middlesbrough went on strike trying to force a move to Oldham. I mean, I know it's in Middlesbrough, but even so, you know, it's like. <laughs> All right, great question. Next one. Got a few hands up anyway. Wherever the microphone lands. How you doing? Uh, thank you. Um, it's just—it's very welcome to have a panel like yourselves here tonight. Just want to say quickly because there's always a bit of yin and yang in football. Everything needs balance. So for every Arsenal fan TV, we have the Blizzard panel here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we have Claude Troops and Robbie and DT who w wants to work out who's who. But um, just a couple of points from the weekend that've been touched on previously by the by the speakers tonight. One is um, after the untimely death of Ugo Ekiog, the utterly tasteless. Um, celebration of the untimely deaths of Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Marcus Rojo by the United team before the game. And on a slightly less serious note, one of Owen's favourite hobby horses, the utterly prepared non-celebration celebrations by Christian Benteke twice yesterday, where he, it was quite obvious that he knew what he was going to do if he scored at Anfield. Has football reached peak hubris, where players think that there are absolutely no consequences to what they do. Thank you very much. <laughs> and good night. <laughs> Be hubris, anyone? But I can, I can only take the non-celebration celebration, and it's it's you know it's quite a common trope. Well, these Benteke's was okay. Benteke's was so intense that he was actually celebrating, but, but so it was okay. The non-celebration celebration, I I think. It's one of the, you know, football has a habit of doing this. You, if something comes into the game, but when it starts, it's quite a nice thing. Yeah. So it's a bit like putting the ball out when an opponent's injured. When it started, which was sort of late 80s, early 90s, it was sort of a gentlemanly act. But then people start to exploit it, and it sort of becomes expected. And now 
I just think people, you know, clubs shouldn't do it. It should not be expected. The non-celebration celebration, I remember when Julio Arca scored for Middlesbrough against Sunderland and didn't celebrate, and that felt to me appropriate. I appreciated the fact that a, a, a player who came from Argentina had been made very welcome in Sunderland, who clearly enjoyed his time at Sunderland immensely, still hasn't left. I mean, yeah, he's still living in South Shields, bizarrely. <laughs> no, no offence to your wife, sorry. <laughs> there in the South Shields team that's made the FA Vars final no less yeah, absolutely yeah um, <laughs> bit of a I, step I, up from Sunderland yeah Arca isn't Solano sitting in the North East as well I'm sorry Solano is it, isn't he still in the North East I think is he gone he's moved uh, Gaisky oh, is still in Yarm so yeah, oh, yeah. Um, is that Lee Catamount is it Lee, Lee Catmull who's country, banned yeah. from every pub? Jonathan York. Woodgate country. Uh, and back to Arca. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Arca had been you know, a, a real sort of cult hero at Sunderland. And so, yeah, he moved to Middlesbrough. And I think everybody in Sunderland, nobody begrudges him that move, although they, they pretend to be a rival of Sunderland. Um, <laughs> yeah, Middlesbrough in the Premier League, Sunderland had got relegated. Of course he should have been playing in the Premier League. He didn't want to leave the area. Yeah, fair enough, it's... It, it would have been nice if he'd stayed, but we, we understood why he went. And then when he scored for them against us, you know, he, he didn't celebrate. That's nice. That's kind of, that felt appropriate. But if you've been at a club for 20 minutes and they've kicked you out the door, you know, you see, you see it happens sometimes. You go, God, did he play for them? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, he did. Like 12 appearances, no goals, yeah. It's also the ostentatious, I'm not celebrating, you know, everybody stay away from me. It's <laughs> much Look how classy I am. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> Okay, you might remember yeah. how Danny Welbeck was um, taken to task because he celebrated scoring against Manchester United for Arsenal. Well, that's absurd. I mean, I, he, I agree with you. If you move clubs, you have a right to celebrate for scoring for that club. I mean, if you, if you, uh, if you say relegated a team you played for, and you were dancing about on the pitch afterwards, that would feel slightly inappropriate. But if you scored a goal, I mean. Also, just to just, uh, address the gentleman's question, I don't think football has reached peak hubris. Oh, no, I think it's got a long way to go. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of growth room here. <laughs> next up, please. Who wants to ask the next question? Oh, a, f a funny thing about celebrations is that I, 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 I need to say that. Um, when France went to the South African World Cup in 2010, glorious, glorious days, <laughs> um, our front line, and this is not a joke, spent more time practicing goal celebrations than scoring goals before the tournament. <laughs> this is absolutely true. They were staging uh, goal celebration competitions before the... Uh, so number yeah. one, the amount of time spent was handballs. Number two... <laughs> sorry, it was, too, it, was, it was too easy. Number four, number five, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who's up next? Hi there, guys. Um, just wondering, what do you think the effect of Brexit and possibly <laughs> Le Pen will have on football? Go we away. We can go now. now. <laughs> Le Pen is not going to have much of an effect on football. I, I genuinely don't think so. Um, because she's going to be swept aside in a tide of filth down to the sewer where she belongs. And uh, <laughs> so it's not going to happen. As to Brexit... There's the Simon Jordan School, which, um, you know, remember Simon Jordan? The guy with loads of hair like Trump and Kim Jong-un. And um, <laughs> he thinks it's going to be great for the British game because more 
players are going to uh, you know be able to blossom through um, Premier League and so forth. Uh, Finally, I, we won't if you be ask me my my, my considerate opinion, if they're talking about barista visas at the moment, uh, I can be you can be absolutely sure that there will be ways. Should Brexit happen, I still got my doubts. Should Brexit happen, and when it happens, that there will be regulations put in place which will cons will considerably make it easier for people to fit the Home Office regulations, and I don't think it will make a shadow of a difference. Economically and politically, it's too important. So they'll find a way, believe it, to make sure that the Premier League clubs are not affected by it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think in terms of uh, work permits, I think you're absolutely right. I think the, the, the one impact could be if, if Brexit does have a devastating effect on the British economy, which seems entirely probable, mm -hmm. then there's just less money in Britain and therefore less money in England and therefore less money in the Premier League and therefore less money to pay for TV subscriptions and therefore the money in the game goes down and therefore the level of Premier League goes down. But that's an indirect and long-term consequence. All right, we have time for one or two more here. So there's a couple on this side. There you go. Hey, which formation do you think will come in and be the most popular in the Premier League um, after the 3-4-2-1 that's now popular? Jonathan Wilson. <laughs> well... I think what's intriguing about the 3-4-2-1 is you're already we've seen coaches looking at the best way of countering that. You know, that, that's, that's the Vogish formation. And the reason I think why it is popular and why it is successful is, is actually less to do with the back three than to do with the, those, those two players. And um, the, the two creative players that are sort of operating almost as inside forwards they they don't fall in the zone of the fullback of the opposing fullback. They don't fall in the zone of the opposing centre back. They're slightly too wide for the opposing central midfielder. So they, or if you're playing two two holding midfielders against that, okay, they can pick up those two number tens or those two inside forwards. But then if the centre forward drops deep, which is what Brendan Rodgers Liverpool did, he had Sterling playing as a centre forward, or a player breaking forward from midfield, they're sort of untended. So those 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 inside forwards operate in a pocket that's not easy for a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 or a 4-4-2 to pick up. So the way teams have tried to counter that this season, uh, I think I'm right in saying that eight teams have played a back three against Chelsea's back three this season. Now, what's interesting about that particularly is that all the players who were at Barcelona in the late 90s under Van Gaal, who are now coaching the Premier League, so Koeman... So players or coaches under Van Gaal, so Koeman, Mourinho, Guardiola, have all tried a back three against Chelsea's back three. Uh, Pochettino has tried the back three against it. David Moyes, that, that well-renowned tactical genius, has <laughs> tried it. It uh, didn't work for him. Um, of, the, of those eight, two have won. So just because you've worked out a way that might stop it doesn't mean that you can execute that. But it does seem to me that the 3-4-2-1 is its own logical counterpoint because you have two holding players there in the 3-4-2-1. So in Chelsea's system, you have Kante and Matic. So Kante, the Kante and Matic figures pick up the Azar and Pedro figures, but you also got three defenders. So one of them can step out to be that extra man if there is a centre-forward dropping deep or if there's somebody breaking. So it's a, it's a system that seems to be its own negation. So I'm not sure where you go from there. Um, 
so I, I don't know, is the answer. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it is fascinating how the back three ha has spread so rapidly. And I think one of the reasons is that if you know, the back three has spread be because it works from an attacking point of view, but it also is how you counter the back three. And so you have that very strange balance. I guess it's like when 4-2-3-1 came through. 4-2-3-1 is the best formation to counter 4-2-3-1. So some teams start playing it, so everybody starts playing it. So it still seems very alien to English football. The back four still seems more natural. Uh, so there's a tension there. And, and how that plays out, I think, will be interesting. Um, I think we might see more teams playing uh, back four with uh, holding you know, uh, the, the Trivote as... Mourinho called it when he was at Real Madrid trying to pretend he invented the formation. Three holding midfielders sitting very, very deep. And so effectively saying, OK, we've got seven men, a seven-man block behind the ball, and then you know, play three quick players up front. I think you might see United do that against City on Thursday night. What, what's the one where there's the Centro Medico and the roaming Volavant that I saw on Twitter recently? <laughs> <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Well, uh, what, about sure what about Tony Pulis's 6-3-1? Well, no, I mean, that, 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 the back six is an interesting thing. Because uh, we, we saw Mourinho use that at Chelsea, uh, of, of playing a very narrow back serious. four and having your wide midfielders dropping back almost as wing-backs. So, so maybe playing a back six won't come to seem an absurdity. Maybe that will be a thing that seems... You know, the first manager I saw do that, Joe Kinnear at Newcastle against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. First season I covered football, he played a back six. Didn't work, obviously, it's <laughs> Joe Kinnear, but, you know... <laughs> All right, great questions tonight. We will squeeze one more in because so many people are putting their hands up. So last question, I think. How you doing, lads? What's your proudest moment as a football journalist? Proudest? It's proudest? Not a word I use very often. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, 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 I've got one, I've got one. Well, I, Christ, what, what, I have you, what have you lost over your careers? Jesus Christ. <laughs> See, silly man. No, my proudest moment as a football journalist was publishing uh, the investigation on Qatar 2022 that I'd done with my friend Eric Champel. And um, <laughs> feeling that for once um, we were working for the common good and not just to get a scoop, but we were trying actually to make things go forward and being trying, you know, based on sound journalistic principles. But it's not that often that you feel that your work can actually have a positive impact on the game that you love, and that was one such occasion, and I was quite proud of that. Yeah, v very, very much like. Well very much like Philippe, I think it's when your work actually means something. So I think the first time I got paid for playing football manager was <laughs> probably. 14 year old Ian was very happy about that. I teleported back to find him. I, I guess there's two ways of addressing that. In terms of the, uh, the, 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 the thing I've done that has sort of had the most sort of impact, it was coining the, or using the phrase dead man walking about Claudio Ranieri, um, which I, I'd used in the FT. Somebody at a press conference said to Ranieri, you have been described as dead man walking. It was then picked up by everybody because obviously Ranieri answered the question. So dead man walking is, was me. Um, but yeah, in terms of what Philippe says about doing something where you're aware it's having, uh, or what were you aware it has a relevance beyond the largely trivial world of football? Starting the blizzard. Well, that's very kind, and uh, buy it, please. 
Um, but I, I, was, I was in Gabon uh, in January, February this year, and this is a story that it is in the, 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 the present blizzard, um, so if you've got free copies today, it's in there, so I, I won't go into too much detail on it. It's been very hard to sell elsewhere, uh, which has been, I think, uh, really disappointing, but um, we, after, when the group stage is finished in the Couple of Nations, we got invited to, to dinner with the Prime Minister of Gabon, which seemed a bit weird, and he was spinning us... They seemed quite nice. Uh, he was spinning us this line about how, oh, yeah, the elections last year, there wasn't really much going on. And I was sort of thinking, yeah, the elections last year, I didn't really know about that. And then the following day, there's a press conference uh, held by the leader of the opposition, a uh, bloke called Jean Ping. And I thought, oh, I suppose I should go along to that. That sounds like something that is probably important, even if it's not interesting. And my taxi driver took me to the wrong place. He took me not to, to Ping's house, which is where the press conference is being held, but to the opposition headquarters. And I got there and I thought, fuck, there's bullet holes. And there's bullet holes everywhere. Like the gates, the walls covered in bullet holes. It's like, it's like the surface of a golf ball. It's like dimpled with bullet holes. And I went in and the windows are all smashed. And... Um, so they got to, oh, no, you're in the wrong place. You've got to, you know, it's 10 minutes that way. You, they took me to this press conference. So I, I, I probably should go back. And so I went back the next day with, with a couple of other journalists who had said, do you know anything about these elections? And it turned out, I mean, there'd been a massacre there. Um, I, could, I can give you the names of 23 people who were killed there. Uh, I can prove that 30 people were killed there. I suspect somewhere between 60 and 70 were killed there. Um... And over the following two weeks, suddenly I wasn't doing football writing. Suddenly I was sort of investigating something a lot more serious and talking to people, to, to eyewitnesses to the massacre, to um, to the families of people who'd been killed, uh, to politicians, to doctors who, who tracked the wounded and, and dealt with the uh, with, with, with fatalities. And then on, on, the, on the very final day, on the day the day I left, I got another interview with the Prime Minister and was in his office. Uh, I was with, um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I was, with, I was with Nick Ames from The Guardian who got turned away because he wasn't wearing a collared shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so it ended up being just me and the Prime Minister and two of his advisers. Um, and sort of, you know, I, I'm used to sort of when, when I bother to speak to players, which is rarely saying... What, what do you remember about that semi-final in 1972? And having to say to this Prime Minister, kind of, did, did, you, did you use live rounds? And did, did, do you feel that was disproportionate? Um, so, I, I, yeah, it, it disappoints me a lot that, that um, it's not been possible to uh, sell the, the, the more political story than what's in this blizzard. But that was something that when I was doing it, it felt, it felt important. Unfortunately, the rest of the world doesn't seem to care, but... Great question. And just one last one from Twitter to wrap things up. In the wake of Sergio Ramos, this is from James, in the wake of Sergio Ramos's red card, uh, who are your favourite dirty bastard defenders? <laughs> one quick one from each of you, if you have anyone in your head. I think Neil Ruddock deserves special praise for, for managing to break both of Andy Cole's legs in one single challenge. I mean, that, that does take some doing. Jonathan? Or Philippe? 
Philip, you know what I'm going to say, and you know it's long, so you might as well go now. No, okay. Um, I don't have any favorite hard bastard because one of my theories is that so-called hard bastards are fundamentally cowards. And um, because there are people who just go out to, uh, to injure and hurt, no bigger coward than Roy fucking Keane. When... Fucking hell, run, run. No, 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 no. When, 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 when you assaulted, when you assaulted Alfinger Harland, which is for me the most shocking assault I've ever seen a football pitch, for which the guy should have been suspended for life. And I believe that, and that's that. And I'm going to seek shelter somewhere. That's probably a good idea. Yes. No, um, just a hard man. Uh, that, that because fake, there are loads of fake hard men, and the, f- most, the, the fakest hard man of them all is Raymond Domenech. Remember the, the clown who got France to a World Cup final? Um, he, <laughs> his career as a hard man was built on a complete misunderstanding. Uh, somebody else broke somebody's leg in a game and Raymond Domenech pretended it was him who'd done the dirty. <laughs> I am not inventing, this is absolutely true. And then he grew himself this big moustache, a bit like, you know, Lee Van Cleef on speed or with loads of, uh, you know, you, you see the one I mean. Then he developed this whole persona. For example, when he was uh, warming up, at the time there were uh, fences all around the, the, the ground and he would take the ball and he would go to the stand where the uh, supporters of the opposing team were, and he would take the ball and he would hit it as hard as he could on the fence, so the people would go like this. Then what he would do as well, he would grow his fingers like a classical guitar player, and then, I'm not joking, this is absolutely true, and he um, filed them in the shape of of claws so that he could actually go (coughs) like Vinnie Jones, on, on dead ball situations. And he also came on, on the... This is all absolutely true. <laughs> it's all true. Also, in his baggy shorts, when he was at Lyon, he had taken... I think it's something he learned from an Italian defender. He had the nails, but he also had safety pins. Carlos Collado so the Antas was the first could, to do took it. them, and again, in the wall, like that. So this is what I think of hard men. I don't think much of them. But I, I think that's... Uh, the distinction between people who go out to injure the players and players who are just hard is is worth making. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I guess I guess the person I'm going to say fits into both categories because he certainly wasn't afraid of a horrendous challenge. But John Kay, the uh, former Wimbledon and more importantly Sunderland fullback, <laughs> um, he was only about five foot five, thin as a thin thing. Uh, uh, what is it? A, a rake, a rake, a thin as a rake. But he's shorter than a rake. Um, and and the, uh, the, there's two, well actually three, three moments. Uh, <laughs> first one was he, he, he suffered a very severe leg break, broke his leg in, in two places. And it was that Roker Park. Was that Neil Ruddock? I can't... I, I, I can't no. remember who it's against. It was a team went blue and white, I remember. But anyway, he, he's put on the put on the stretcher, and it's obviously really serious. You, know, you can tell from the way he's gone down. You can tell from the reaction of everybody around him. And he's on the stretcher, and as he goes off, he sits up and pretends he's he's canoeing. <laughs> um, 
And then there was, I, I mean, I, I, I know that... I know the first time we, we did an event here, I, I talked about, about this game. Um, but but the, as a fan, the best game I ever went to was Sunderland beating Chelsea 2-1 in the FA Cup semi-final, uh, quarter-final replay in, in 1992. Um, and you know, Chelsea were, were top flight, Sunderland were second flight. Sunderland were utterly awful, but somehow kind of got through to the cup final that year. And in, in that replay, Sunderland being brilliant first half, taking the lead, Chelsea came back, came back, came back, eventually equalised six, uh, six minutes from time to Dennis Wise. And it just looked like Sunderland were going to get hammered in extra time. And they went down the other end and scored from a corner out of nothing. And so the ground's going mad. It's gone into, extra, it's gone into injury time. And you know, Chelsea are attacking again, as they have been throughout the second half. You sort of think, get it away, get it away. And the, the, the ball breaks to Vinnie Jones, who's playing for Chelsea then, who was 25 yards out, 30 yards out. And John Kay, for no good reason flies in two-footed and clatters him just below the knees. And there was a little bit of me thought, that's stupid, you're giving away a free kick in a dangerous position. But the bigger part of me and the rest of the crowd went, he's fucking nailed him, it's brilliant! <laughs> and clearly, Kay had just been waiting for his moment to kind of nail Vinnie Jones. And even though someone would 2-1 up in injury time in a key game, he, he took his chance. But actually... The final thing, the thing that proves his status beyond all doubt as the greatest hard man in Sunderland's history, maybe the history of the world, was Sunderland on a pre-season tour down near Bristol in the southwest. And John Kay is, I say, five foot five, thin as a rake. And he's, he's in, having a, a bonding session in a, in a local pub. And he's, he's in the toilet. And he, you know, he's having a piss in the urinal. And some local hard lad, six foot eight, massive, Comes up to him and goes, what, you reckon you're hard? Come on, out in the car park, we'll see who's hard. And you know, John Kay looks up at him. I go, well, it's ridiculous, you know, different weight categories, this isn't going to work. But if you're hard, can you do this? Reaches in the urinal, takes out some antiseptic cubes and starts to eat them. <laughs> On that note, folks, a round of applause, please, for Jonathan Wilson, Ian McIntosh and Philippe Beauclair. Thanks, everybody.